Greetings, salutations, and welcome to this, the final episode of this season of the Manhood Simplified Podcast. I am your host, Ukamilisha Ogwapovana, my co-host, Ayanda Nyati. Unfortunately, can't be with us today, so I'm flying solo. He's in Cape Town on assignment, but you're with me, and it is an absolute pleasure to have you here on the Manhood Simplified Podcast, the show where we dedicate our efforts to rewriting the manual of manhood with each conversation that we have, with the idea being that you pick something up from any of the conversations that we have that will inspire you to be the change we need to see in our society. On this episode, we are looking at the link between tradition, men's mental health, and what might need to be sacrificed, what might need to change in order for the conversation around men's mental health to be changed. And it is an absolute pleasure to welcome my guest, Mr. Anele Siswana, to help us unpack this conversation. Anele, thank you so much for joining us. Please take a moment, if you will, to uh, formally introduce yourself and briefly cover the work that you do in this field. Okay. Yeah, Gamma, it's very difficult to define or give a description that is singular of who am I and what I do. But I'll try and simplify it because I've got several identities or what you would call multiple identities. One, I consider myself to be a clinical psychologist by trade. Um, and other identities that I possess, I'm a healer. Um, um, I am a black queer man, a gay man, um, and part of what I do, I am a researcher and academic in studies of critical masculinities in, with a particular focus around our constructs of what we mean by queer identity in the African context. Yeah. Well, let's dive straight into it then, this link between tradition and men's mental health and how men seemingly are not prepared to pay the kind of attention that they need to pay to their mental health at the expense of their traditions and their values. Can you talk us through your insight of how, how these are linked, how detrimental one is towards the other, and how do we go about fixing that particular situation? I think for we need to look at the intersections of um, space, um, context, before we can talk tradition. And what do I mean? Well, first, masculinity is not a, um, a normative construct across cultural spaces or across traditions. So how we talk and construct masculinity is influenced by space, time, and that context. And what do I mean by this? Um, a Kosa man is constructed differently as opposed to a Sotho man and a Zulu man. And again, we talk of these things loosely, like we would say, Indo-Domzulu, we know what to expect, right? Indo-Domkosa, uh, we know what to expect, Indo-Domtswane, and all of those things. So those are dominant social constructs of, that help us to think of localizing what masculinity is. But there's a dominant construct that describes what masculinity is and, and what manhood is. It's called hegemonic masculinity. And one person that has helped us in depth in South Africa to unpack that, it's Professor Robert Morel and Professor Kobano Ratele. That have really helped us to understand what does it mean to be a man within the construct of masculinity. So by definition, hegemonic masculinity helps us to define um, heteronormative ways that describe 
and dictate what a man should be. So ideally, a man should be should have inherent physical strength that looks at certain embodiments of how you should look like. You should be a provider. You should be um, a help. All of these things that we know what a man is. So ideally, every typical man across cultures, across race, across um, different diversities, we expect that a man should be that. This has also helped us then now to look at other alternative forms of masculinities that which if you do not fall within the dominant construct of what masculinity is, then you'll fall in there. Then you speak of alternative masculinities, subordinate masculinities, men who are unemployed, men who are not the typical. So we categorize them as alternative men. Then we've got another segment of queer masculinities. And again, it's a political kind of one because then if you talk of a queer man, you're talking of a gay man, right? However, coming to your question as to how does culture help us to draw nuances in, uh, and understandings of what a man is. I was born into a Kosa community and raised within a Kosa community. So my ideal understanding could have not been complete had it been for Ugui and Tabin. And, and again, you can, maybe we can talk about that, the discursive thing that I've had to deal with. Knew very well that I was gay, even though I didn't have the name for it at that time. But I knew at the end of the day, there's this formal process that is going to tick the box that I am now a full Kosa man made for society and the benefit of the community. So this is then now where my status came in. I went to Ndabeni, that was 2007, um, and I did all of that. Um, the cutting of the foreskin and all of that, that was fine. Um, in there, at that time, I didn't have an understanding of what was it being done because all I wanted was to heal and go home. And you know the aesthetics of it, umgidi, new clothes, new life, and all of that. But three years, I mean, after I was in matric at the time when I went for my, my initiation school, and then subsequent to that, and then after my, during my postgrad studies, I then had an idea of actually understanding what is the psychological understanding of Ulaluk. This is then now when my interest started writing about Ulaluk of Akosa, but looking at what is the psychological understanding of this rite of passage, far beyond it being the cutting of the foreskin, what does it do psychologically? I know there are many politics around Ulalogogakosa, but in the way of how I talk around it and how I write about it, I write about the socio-psychological understanding and the significance of Ulalogogakosa. So for me, you are then introducing this young boy from being a boy into adulthood, and the idea of what manhood is. And obviously, the dominant construct of what hegemonic masculinity is about, you have to tick all the boxes. At the end of the day, you must be able to take care of your family, you must be able to be independent. But I looked at psychological constructs such as resilience as a result of physical pain, however, how you then negotiate that. But then I, I get, at the end of the day, 
It's about formation beyond it being a ritual. It is a formation of introducing this young man into what it means to be an adult mm. and what it means to be a man, even though that doesn't happen. Mm. So for me, again, each cultural group has got its own ways that it reintroduces men into what manhood is. Unfortunately, I don't know some other, other groups of what they do, but I've seen Sutu and other cultures have that. To introduce this young boy into what you are that is about identity, that is about behavior and expressions. However, the other side of what these initiation rites of passage do, they do not do the management of how to manage all of these things. And this is what has led us to the problems that we have in society. I'm going to latch on to everything that you've just described about the traditional rite of passage across of Raluk, because it's something that I have a, I have my own experience of itself. You mentioned about we had in 2007, same year in my story. Okay. And in my instance, I'd always be, even before I went, I'd always grappled with what I observed to be this dramatic amount of pressure being placed <laughs> on young boys to go yes, down yes, there yes. simply because there were there were friends and their peer groups who went in June of that year before them Definitely. that went a year before them and they felt that there was there was a there was a gap that they have to close otherwise we won't be able to be friends anymore we won't be able to associate with each other anymore and i think that speaks to the pressures that we put on ourselves to live up to these ideals mm. of, of masculinity, mm. of being a man, which I think there are elements of across cultural groups. You mentioned um, earlier how um, there are certain differences that can be identified in and amongst these, um, these traditional groups and these various um, cultures that we have across the country. But in, within those differences are also similarities that Definitely. can be identified. And one of those similarities, I think, is around this conversation of these ideas that we share amongst each other as men of indodaikali, indodamayenze, A, B, C, D, and all of the other sort of pressures that 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 can be can can be identified across these cultural and traditional groups. Are we aware as as the men on the receiving end and the giving end of these pressures, are we aware of how harmful we are towards each other in the maintenance of this pressurized environment where, 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 where manhood and, and the concept of manhood is something that has, to be, that has to be chased, can only be understood in one way? Yeah, and I think this is where context plays a factor. Uh, a Jobic's Kosa boy mm. has no reference of that pressure. They may see it with their cousins, but I could grow up, probably that child grows up, grows up as a cool kid, cheese boy. It has no social, cultural meaning in his life. So chances are that pressure is meaningless for him. However, you go to the Eastern Cape, across all parts of the Eastern Cape, whether you talk of Eben on all of that, it is a step ladder to a definition of beingness as a boy, that for you to be then legit, there must be something that happens to your penis, right? And again, we localize manhood around the symbolic thing that you have. This is why we both know that at the end of the day, if when people want, when I'm so paranoid about, are you really indoor, that they would then peep and try to do that. So there's so much pressure that 
is around social constructs and ways of, at the end of the day, you should be this. However, through, if you look at Ulaluga as an example, there is a lot of toxicity that happens in there. I can't fathom till today, which is part of one of my studies I'd like to do it at one stage in my life, to go and dive in and actually unpack what do we teach these young boys. We teach them nothing except that you're going to have sex to go and test your message dispens if it's working mm. after this, mm. right? Test drive you, you're going to test drive it. And the other problem is that I have it with that testing of the Mercedes Benz, or you can call it Ferrari, and all of that, it then perpetuates dominant constructs Mm. of toxic masculinity because it then says, find any girl, right? To deposit your debt that you got in there. So from that perspective, how do you expect this naive 18-year-old to respect a woman that you're going to have to just have an F moment, and that's it. That's number one. To how many times are you going, who's going to tell you that you, it's, it's proper now? It means for as long as you feel it's not proper, you're going to test it on many different women. So what are we teaching boys? Is to teach that women are symbolic receivers of your debt and nonsense, right? Another part of it is you're teaching this young boy, it's about over-sexualization, which is, that's the problem that is tied to rape. Because how do you negotiate consent in that moment of your own desire, your own need of testing this Mercedes-Benz to a girl who says, I'm not interested? So chances are you would feel the inherent need to take it as you wish. So such particular nuances, but also a simple thing like pain. That pain is flipping painful. Yeah. From day one, there's no anything that numbs your pain and you are told clean. For me, in that moment, it's a physical pain that is not gendered. But it's an experience of what every human being goes through. But from those moments that cleaner from the first day to the last day, it means we're saying suppress any form of emotion. Does this then not lend itself to the idea, and this is a conversation I've had with um, members of the production team Mm. as well, does it not lend itself to the idea that there are certain elements of our traditions and cultures that need to adapt with modern times simply because they don't align with the demands of a modern society and the pressures of the modern society that we currently occupy? I always say there's absolutely nothing wrong with tradition itself. Um, and I believe there's nothing around the tradition in this course I would say isigo. That is, isigo ali change. You can't change it. But you can change traditions because traditions evolve with time and space, right? Now, if you look at Ulalugo in the context of COVID times, it showed the relevance of Ulalugo as a practice that is significant. But the way of how it was done, it had to change. Leave the aesthetics again of how Imikid were done, the hiring of hotels and having speeches and doing all of that. So for me, there's nothing wrong about Lula Lugo itself. And again, if it's done the right way, 
Now, if you look at Tulalogo itself, it's, it's over-commercialized. To circumcise one boy, it's about 1,200. There's the person who cuts, the one who's going to take care of, chances are he's always drunk or he's got 10 initiates to look after. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with the practice itself, but it's in the way of how we have done it. But also, if you look at it, Gamma, there is no curriculum. What do we teach these young boys, right? There's no curriculum about what, it, what a man is. You are only told on that day, you say, again, you say, Dean daughter, right? No one then takes you on a journey of what you meant by the time you were asked to do that, to say that. No one teaches you about your expectations of that. Um, all you're going to be told in daughter is this and this and this and that, and all those things are wrong, right? So it's in the way of how this is managed after the... Our focus becomes circumcision. Our focus is not on initiation, which I consider initiation as formation, as teaching, and reformation. So if we were to look at tradition itself and Ulalugo as a tool or an embodiment of moral regeneration and reconfigurations of masculinity, something needs to happen around what we teach young boys at the initiation school, the role of men who need to participate at this time. These boys, these young men, they stay alone throughout. How do I, how, how am I gonna know what it means to be a man and a responsible father when my father has not been involved in the entire process, right? My own father is not here, he's absent, and again, I'm using his surname, I mean, his clan name because it's essentialized, but the very same person who raised you is not embraced and, and, and mm. all of that. So for me, we will need a reconfiguration of understanding that we need men to be involved, to know during December and June period, men in that area become responsible. And then we've got a uniform way and language that we know at this time, this is how these boys are gonna spend three weeks, where we talk of gender-based violence, during the times of Inkontla, um, where that these young men stood. We, we give them something to talk about. What are your thoughts around um, gender-based violence now? Because Ulualugo gives men power. And, and, and this inherent thing that you've got physical strength, right? So how then do you use that power and not misuse it in moments where you feel powerless? Nothing of that happens. So in, 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 in summary, uh, Kama, there's nothing wrong about the practice itself. It needs uh, our redefinition, our reconfigurations of how we do initiation. Circumcision is best. The government is involved um, to manage issues of boys dying. It's a medical thing. But initiation, it's a social cultural thing. It's a social construct. But the very same men, who is going to come and teach me about manhood when we're unemployed? True. Who, why am I going to listen to you when all I know is that you've got four girlfriends and it's normal? Mm. So even the very same people who can, would tend to go there, they teach these young boys wrong things. And again, there's a huge thing about substances.
Who brings substances in Durban? It's men who've been to initiation school. Mm. As far as as far as these the, the, the this labeling of what's right and what's wrong, do you think there are elements of that that are just purely subjective based on our own experiences, or does that is that informed by a view of the situation? As it's as it's currently um, unfolded, and for 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 the length of time that it's unfolded in that way, that informs us to go. Okay, no, the way things are being done now are wrong, and they need to change. My so so first half of that question is: Is this this question of right and wrong purely subjective, or are there elements that can be drawn from perspective and views, and also personal experience? And as far as the reassignment and redefinitions of the social elements of this contract that. We signed when when we when we go when we undergo circumcision or when we go initiation should I say to become men in the society is it only men who can chime in with these redefinitions and this reassignment of meaning to this conversation of manhood or is there space for other um, people outside the confines of manhood to contribute to this conversation? First, the the, the answer around yes and no. Um, I mean, oh, but is it a right thing to do? Is it wrong? It's it's a subjective thing, but also it's a social problem, right? People who do not like these initiation rites of passage, especially around young boys, it's certainly around both circumcision that at the end of the day it goes bad because if you look at, for example, Elusigisigi, culturally, or if you look at back in the days, it was banned, Ulalugo. Um, 100 years ago. And then now whoever reinstated it didn't do it the right way. Now, a lot of, a number of death cases, both circumcision happen in that area because the people in there do not know how to circumcise, right? Then it, it becomes a problem. Two, uh, if you look at other problems that have been around that, it's a, better, it's a matter of, it's not the Isigololua logo itself, but within even Isigololua logo, there are many identities. You've got Amashubi, you've got Amapaja, you've got Amazawa, you've got Amakosa, you've got Amamfengwen, all of these things. So all of these people have a different view around how this must be done. And this is what causes problems. And they are unknown initiation schools at the time of Lalugo because people feel we will do it this way. And doing it this way, it's not legislated. That's what causes the problems that we have. And then it becomes a social problem. Now, when you look at whose voices matter on Lalugo, it has been essentialized that it is a man thing. Women, we don't get them involved, which is fine. I understand that argument. However, I've got a problem when you're going to subjugate and put aside the mother of this child, whom chances are she has financed the whole thing from paying in maybe, the one who's going to initiate to the last day. Now, I fail to understand how that is possible because the definitions of what this person needs about what being a responsible man need a perspective of a woman. And in the case of, in that case, what do we do to mama boys 
who are very strongly tied to their parents, it's a very difficult time, that three weeks, right, fine. But at the end of the day, I'm going to still go back to the very same mother that has not been involved. Right. I'm going to go back to that same mother now yeah. with this attitude that I'm a man, I'm, I'm a man, man I'm a house, man. I can do whatever I want. Which, then again, these young boys go there, they're right, mm. and come back problematic. I'm no longer going to wash dishes. I'm no longer going to be responsible for uh, domesticated things because in the indoor. But at the end of the day, like, you're only 18, you still live at your mother's house. Mm. Um, if you are a real man, by 18, after interbeing, you should be should be out of that, yeah. right? So there's there's also a mismanagement around that. But I don't think it's a man's thing, especially now that young boys are dying. What happens when this young when when things go wrong, and the only doctor on duty on the day of this boy having a post circumcision is a female? Are you gonna say, let them they can, tandem colors on this book? A man is not a man. Has given us that perspective. That there's not only one voice that matters. At the same time, it's a, it's not is not a man's issue only. It's a community thing. Because at the end of the day, who gets to celebrate this whole work? The whole community celebrates by doing the homecoming. And we then help this young man and give him words of encouragement of what we expect from him. So it's a collaborative thing, it's an integrated thing. But again, another point that I'd like us to touch on it, it's a matter of how then now do we accommodate space for alternative ideals of masculinity? What do we do to a trans man who wants to undergo through the process? Dominantly, this person grew up assigned as female but have assumed a new identity as a male who's identifying as trans. And because I have the ideal embodiment that can suggest something that needs to be done with it at the end of the day, because it's symbolic and it's important, I can go to Interbin and be a man because the indoor, in the way of how I feel and understand myself to be. But also, how then do we rethink of doing initiation to queer boys or to queer identifying boys. Where does that start then? Because <laughs> I imagine one of the issues, um, and, and I, I can speak from experience because I had a friend <clears throat> who identified as queer who went in Dublin at around the same time I went. And the sentiment that seemed to rest around him in particular was that his experience at Khatini was going to fix his being queer. Surprise, surprise, he comes back out, he's still the same queer individual that he was before, Aye Shatin. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about where that work begins as far as, <laughs> um, as uh, do, do we politicize it? Do we depoliticize it? Do, what kind of space do we have the ability to open now to have this conversation around the ways in which queer identifying um, men who want to participate in this rite of passage go about doing so. Do we, it, it, it's, it, it's not as simple, it's surely not as simple as just encouraging them to do so because there's so much work that needs to be done beforehand to unlearn all of the problematic ideals people may have had towards queer bodies and the questions of treatment. Oh no, do, 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 we, do, we, do we treat these queer bodies um, softer or different than we would um, heteronormative bodies because they're queer and because they're queer we automatically think that they're soft. Uh, talk me through your insight of this. 
It's as intersectional as you have described it, right? You bring intersections of socialization, social constructs, language, because we construct reality through language mm. and normatives. My current conceptualization paper that I'm working around my doctorate is the it's, it's entitled Dungupurtsisi undoing normative ways of becoming a man. So in that doctorate, what I'm hoping to achieve is to separate two things, gender and sexual orientation, and the last thing, expressions. In, I am very clear that a queer body who identifies as a gay man, you are very clear around, I am a man who desires other men. However, that does not make me a woman. So it means I just happen to be attracted to people who are of the same sex. So I am not excluded or I'm not, not I can never not I want, yes. I want the cause. That's why in the Elendaben, because there are things I would never do, or I would never be allowed to do, as umfana or as in Dotekai. So, and again, at that time, if I look at giving an example of my situation, there are many things I needed to do. Even uktwasa, the first thing you are asked to lugilena, right? So, it's a tool of social acceptance and engagement in the world. So a gay man or a gay boy who would love to go there, ideally for him to tick the boxes, he needs the bag to get into that space so as to have the language and the acceptance. Even when we were at varsity, there was a language that is spoken in there, right? So it's about belonging and about identity. So I don't understand how identity can be reduced to sexual orientation of who I desire and what I desire, right? Now, the conversation then needs to start at home, that I'd go to Entabene because the indoor, but at the same time, if you read it, other studies that have, have been done, the corrective aspect of it is, even in my family, I guess, they had that hope that something is going to change. And unfortunately, nothing changed. They have never seen a girl I brought at home. And I guess they got more disappointed. And with my other friends as well, who are queer, and some of them have had to subscribe to the normative, especially after the winter. You have got to prove that you, I, get, I, can, I can go for girls. And some have, have made girls pregnant at that time, but it was not their intention. So the, the whole idea of corrective sexual identities through spaces of culture and tradition is very prominent. So the conversation must start at home, that I go there as a man, and when you welcome me, you welcome me as a man, leave my sexual... It's just that queer identities are politicized and are constructed in a particular way. Now look at, I've got a friend of mine who is a trans woman. He went to Endaveni till today. He said, I only did that for social acceptance. But now men don't understand. After all the power 
you have been given through this practice in society, you are demotivated, more like, it's more like de-centering um, yourself into being a subject of disposition and all of that. And she's very clear, I'm a woman. In fact, she wants to undo and remove um, her penis because she really fully, completely identifies as a woman. It has brought a very different political view around you undoing manhood for an identity that is subjugated. We've spoken about the pressures that arise from these, I'm sure we can both agree, these problematic, these complicated ideals of manhood and masculinity. And we've taken, we, I think we've, we've also managed to take moments to consider the ways in which these pressures can manifest themselves in harmful ways. You mentioned young boys um, impregnating women when they didn't intend to. You mentioned all of these pressures that come with um, coming back from a rite of passage as, as significant as Raluk and the expectation to be able to talk to women who please um, as we put it, and how all of these pressures can manifest themselves in harmful ways that contribute to something like gender-based violence. There's a school of thought that seems to be of the assessment that the mental health implications of all of these pressures that we place ourselves under are simply for men to deal with. No one else cares. No, not even fellow men care about the, the impact that all of these pressures place on the mental health of your fellow man. How, how true, in your opinion, is this assessment? And how much work do you think still needs to be done to change the tide on that conversation? I think I, I'll respond to the last latter part as to what needs to be done around men and mental health. So I think for me, what we need is to destigmatize. First, we need the language that is normative for men to use in describing and locating mental illness. Because mental health is the opposite end of the spectrum. You've got health, disease, which you can also put in the illness. So mental health, it is when you are well. And this is how I think about it. This is never we talk of wellness. I think many, in particular to black men, we fall in the spectrum of mental illness, right? Illness in the sense that our language around mental illness is, is somehow twisted. Because from that construct we spoke about endodiacal, so what is the opposite of endodiacal? Um, it's, it's being soft, it's being all of that which society does not embrace. So men don't know how to define what depression is because depression is going to be tied to mental illness, it's going to be tied to weakness. So we then need to find a way of saying, when you feel this way, and again, when you feel, my biggest argument is always mental health has no gender. Facts. It's not gendered. It has no identity. Anyone can experience it because we're all human. It is just that society has then given us labels and tools of locating certain experiences to certain genders mm. and all of that. 
So if you then think of black men in particular, black men are mentally ill in most times. And this is why we are seeing gender-based violence. This is why we are seeing um, femicide. Only a mentally ill man can do that. Chances are that man has a personality disorder that could be anything that is close to disorders of as an individual who is psychologically unhealthy. Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I 100% okay. agree. This is my with, opinion. With the idea. No, no, no. And I respect you for having it. I'm just not sure I fully agree with the idea that only a mentally ill man can be capable of committing acts as 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 rough as gender-based violence, femicide and whatnot. Because I think for me, I always believe that it's not so much the anger that's the problem. It's the impulses we obey when we're angry. And I think that, and I think for me the, the disconnect comes when we when we when we talk of what kind of impulses are you likely to to agree with when you're when you're mentally capable versus when you're mentally incapable of comprehending the situation that we're in. So I, I, I guess my my point of contention with you, and I'd like to raise this with you, is is what you what you would consider someone who is mentally ill versus someone who is on the opposite end of that spectrum, and why the person on the opposite end of that spectrum wouldn't be capable of this of the acts of violence that a mentally ill person is apparently capable okay. of, according to you. Now that you've, you've amplified it in that way, I, I hear your, uh, your contention. Mm -hmm. Maybe to simplify it, I was probably taking it higher clinically. If we talk of men in forensic wards okay. um, that have murdered and repeatedly raped different people from okay. infants, to adults, mm. then we're talking of a different spectrum there. We're talking of a sociopath, talking of someone who has a severe personality disorder that has no regard of wrongfulness and all of that. Sure. However, if we're talking now of recent incidents and what we've been seeing in society, it does suggest that a larger part of men who are perpetrators of this do have a degree of psychological problems mm. that they can't wrap around, that they can't find possible ways of dealing with them. And possibly then now, the inherent social construct in all of these things, what do you resort to when you can't cry? You have to project that anger. Mm. You have to take it to something. And again, with this mind and everything that we've considered as we're engaging, this young man who feels he's strong, who feels he's a protector, can also feel that he can end the life of the very same person, mm. right? At the same time, when you talk now of general mental health, and I like the fact that you highlighted uh, around something that looks like toxic masculinity and suicide, mm. one would ask, is it only toxic men that can commit suicide, or is it, normal man. I don't know the intricacies of the past two incidents of Ricky Rick and Patrick Shai. But if you look at those men in the embodiments of how they are and they were in society, they are considered to be okay men. But eventually they committed suicide. That has really made me think differently around positions of class, what people do, 
their social status and all of that. But it has also made me realize how emotional pain can never be reduced or limited to status and all of that. Mm. But in the case of where we are, chances are any man who would engage with such toxic behavior has somewhat a degree of a severe psychological distress and something that makes them um, unwell that they may resort into that. Mm. Now, everything that you've just had to say speaks back to the, the idea that us as a South African society are extremely broken. We're, 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 we're a pain society that has um, a history steeped in a, a large degree of pain and trauma. Um, think of everything that we've been through um, in the wake of apartheid and everything that we're currently experiencing now with um, gender-based violence and femicide at the heights that it's reached here in South African society. Where does the work possibly start to address the pain that, that, that so many men in this country are feeling when we are plagued with the degree of brokenness we are in as a society? And how, does that, how, how much of a barrier does that represent against the work that needs to be done to heal these broken men? What we have in South Africa is as a result of many psychosocial and political factors. Mm. So the brokenness of who we are as a country is tied strongly to our old political dispensation and the disparities of the time that are still present till today. But now, if you talk of a black man and his constructs and his understanding, chances are my great-grandfather never had his own father present. And this thing has become a generational thing. So where do I learn healthy and positive ways of what it means to be a man? That's where it starts for me. Um, where do I learn what it means to be a man when all of which I know, as an example, it could be a, a hectic township, any in South Africa. There is no other possibility of a man except what which you see. So your social construct, your social realities will inform how you engage with masculinity and how you engage with what it means to be a man. If for the longest of time I've been around seeing Obodi and men who are in the township who drink, who only do girls, who are unemployed, where else would I get the possibility? Because even at home, that's all that I know. It will then take a positive, alternative way of realizing, actually, to be the kind of man I want to be that is not this, there must have been a huge shift and a huge influence, either this young boy having alternative men who provide him with an alternative way of being in the world. But if I have been socialized or raised by present men, loving men, soft men around my life, then the likelihood I would be that. We have seen there are families that have a trajectory of trauma and substance abuse. Mm. It then becomes a generational thing. But we have seen with families who have tried doing well in black communities, if they are doctors, it becomes a trajectory in the family. So background, context, and space potentially would help me to become the alternative man 
I need to be, that is not toxic, that is not as disempowered as the typical kind of men that I've been exposed to. For me to be the man that I am today, it has taken many alternative possibilities to reconfigure my own sense of what it means to be a man. For young boys in the township, as Lalin in, in, in deep rural areas, they will need positive embodiments and ideals that are different. I would listen more to a man in Dublin who is educated, who has a house, who is an inspiration than a guy whom I know is a problem, whom I know is the king of Nyawupe and all of these other problems. Just between me and you, come. When last did we go to Interbin? Oh, just to go there, just just, just to go, just just, just to go to there go. briefly. Yes. Um, I was actually I was actually down there. I was actually down there uh, last year because um one of my uh one of my nephews um recently uh went down there. Um, wasn't wasn't the most popular decision on his part. I won't go into too much detail, but yes, that was the very last time I went down there was to visit him, and it was very interesting to note how much how much was different, but how much was similar at the same time. Right, but. What I'm saying in there, to do something. Yeah. Where it's not only your nephew, but when you go to visit your nephew, ask him to call Abu Kabanebaike to come because you have arrived as a man to give a lesson. We hardly do that. Mm. So when would these young boys learn alternative ways of what it means to be a man? When they would get to hear that gender-based violence is not the alternative mm. when we do not do that? Indeed, indeed. Now you mentioned you mentioned um, being a gay man at the top of our discussion, and I think because of that, you'd be the best person to provide the kind of insight I'm looking for on this matter. When it comes to these negotiations of 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 manhood and and gender roles um, between men and women versus, in in your case, intimate settings between fellow men. Um, one man here, one man over there. Are there any differences and similarities that you've noted in the ways in which these negotiations of gender roles are conducted between um, or within a, a heteronormative dynamic versus the, the um, homosexual dynamic between two men? And how, how and where do the differences and the similarities lie? It's interesting that, drawing from what you said about your friend who was treated differently, because it's like, you're a man who is a woman, right? So they will treat you soft, um, and and there's something that is that needs to be fixed. You have to be strong. You have to stop being feminine, expressing, or your embodiments must always be straight. Right? Is there something? Is there something you deem you might find or deem to be offensive in the way in which that? treatment of softness is given to you simply under the implication that, oh, no, because you're a gay man, um, the automatic assumption is you want to be treated softly. That, but when you are there, you know inherently mm. there's no time for softness. It's just how um, you are feminine presenting. So automatically people would gravitate towards you being soft. Uh. But if you are not feminine presenting, you are just normal, it's a safe place to be. But in the case where you are feminine presenting 
then it's you're gonna get that level of people are, are gonna was like they want you to 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 act like a baby so that they can just baby you and be caught you yes excluded from ex- experiencing the pain that that the typical straight man who's there would would feel but how i've had to negotiate my identities as a black man who is closer whom my tradition my culture has a strongest way of how it has helped me to understand the world in a particular way when i go home like this evening i'm flying to pe they are not waiting for a gay brother they're waiting for their brother mm-hmm. and there are things that i expected that i will do as a man when i go to the kraal plant my queer identity has no bearing even if i was feminine presenting when i go to a plant i go there to do things that have to do with ikaya when i do my healing work as a healer my queer identity has no involvement in there how then romance and intimacy can be boxed by virtue of who i desire and what i want in simple terms society has romanticized romance and intimacy to be normal between heterosexuals right um a simple thing i did over the weekend i was celebrating my anniversary with my partner for we've been together for 7 years congratulations the kind of comments i had to delete that were homophobic and uh, because i it was a photo of us kissing it was more romanticized when i look at instagram analytics by females most men did not and i would imagine it's your typical statement because men who are heterosexual or heterosexual govern romance and police romance as a heterosexual thing if you are non heterosexual again if you're non gender conforming if you are gay and all of those things society deems that as problematic so i hope and wish for a community and a society that will go far beyond romanticizing intimacy and romance as a heterosexual thing and as if you are kissing a man if you've got pda at the mall it's like jesus has just arrived on earth just by a man holding another man just by a man kissing another man or just by another uh, lesbian woman kissing another lesbian woman but in the case of what we're talking about here also i wish that typical heterosexual men can shift from the idea of making queer men feel like they are not good enough men by virtue of being queer at the same time queer men who happen to be re- who happen to be men are not mentally ill but again this is a thing that needs to be destigmatized throughout um humanity that if you are queer or if you are non heterosexual you are mentally ill only time that what we deem as something that is psychologically distressing in the dsm in the book that we use to identify disorders it is when someone is diagnosed as 
one who struggles with gender incongruence. Okay. What do you mean by that? Okay. The typical um, disorder that used to be there in the past, back in the days, mental, sorry, homosexuality was deemed as an illness. Okay. Right? But over the years and through studies and contentions around that, being queer is not deemed as an illness. It, they, you can, there's no disorder in the, in the DSM that says a gay person is mentally ill, live biblical constructs, live social constructs. But in the DSM, over the years, in the, in the DSM-5 that we use now as clinicians, the only reservation is for gender incongruence because this person was assigned a particular um, genitalia yeah. at birth, right? But they then feel incongruent with it as time goes. You see that from childhood to the point where now one goes for uh, the surgery. That's when you see the, in, the, the appropriate word because in, before it was gender identity disorder. Now it was changed to gender incongruence because this person feels a psychological distress as a result of that which is that they see because genderedness then happens after the assignment. So they're not dissatisfied or distressed by the gender, but they are dissatisfied by the genitalia. Does it make sense? Uh, it does make sense. So that's the only time in the DSM you would find um, a non-heterosexual kind of a presentation deemed the key thing or the key word there is not illness but distress. However, people think that queer bodies are mentally ill or they need something. That's why we've got other rituals in other countries that people will be slaughtered, goats and all of these things because they want them to be well from being homosexual. I'd like to take a moment to zone, just because I don't think we've uh, been able to touch on it over the course of our conversation. The work that you do as a traditional healer, and I'm interested in, in it because of the, this popular idea that rests around conversations of mental health and mental illness as we've been um, describing it as being a Western problem mm. and, only, and, and, and can only be dealt with in, in, in Western terms. I'd like to get your insight on whether or not any space can be opened for traditional ideas, um, traditional um, interventions to be factored into the way in which we address um, mental illness and how much space can be opened up for any kind of traditional intervention like that. This is a whole thesis. <laughs> anyway, I'll try and simplify it. Yeah. First, I do not do. like the word traditional healer for my personal description. Okay. I can rather be termed as a spiritual healer okay. or just leave it as a healer. And again, it's, a, it's an academic construct thing, again, around traditional healer and whatever, or Western healer. My problem with being a traditional healer, that world is very broad. Okay. As I've said, that we have traditional healing as the broader thing, in there you've got Isangoma, um, you have Amagriha, you name all of those things. Those things are deemed as primitive, are deemed as non-educational. So people, they always get 
shocked when I tell them I am a clinical psychologist, I'm educated because people deem traditional healing as a construct for non-educated people. Okay. Right? I hear you. Um, so for me, I do not want because I'm educated. So I can't be termed as a traditional healer when I've worked so hard. Um, that's sense. an identity and positionality thing. Mm. Secondly, the kind of healing that I do has no attachment to anything that is deemed as traditional. I don't use immunity. Okay. I'm a healer. I heal through prophecy. I heal through dreams, dream interpretations. And what I do, um, sitting with people and helping them unpack spiritual things. And again, the reason why I lean more to be a spiritual healer, I can work with any theological or spiritual or religious view that has to do with spirituality. So for me, I don't consider myself to be narrowed into only being a traditional healer because being a traditional healer in people's construct there's no recognition of God. There's only recognition of our pants. So in my view, that is very integrative. It's, I am of the position that if you are going to talk of indigenous work or indigenous healing, it helps us to shift from traditional he healing but to indigenous healing. Okay. Because then there are multiple views and ways of how we can engage with spiritual matters um, in that context. Oh. Now, the reason why we have these contentions is that traditional healing work, using it for this particular discussion, oh. it has been deemed as an unscientific way or method of healing. One, because the, embodied, the people who embody traditional healing are considered as uneducated. So anything that they do is uneducated. So there's, there's no time for reading that informs your positionality, your modality. Uh, you went to a person, you were taught to be a healer, and that's it. Uh, whereas a medical doctor has been trained on different modalities and different perspectives of healing. So society constructs traditional healing as a thing of non-educated people, as unscientific. It has not been to the lab. It's often done by older people in rural areas and all of that, even if it's in the public space. However, Western medicine, the reason why it's essentialized, it's, a, it's deemed as scientific, it's science, mm. which is I get confused because also traditional healing in its science, it's scientific. It is scientific in a sense that it is an indigenous knowledge system that is not recorded. Only people like us, um, and probably Credo Mutua was one of the most scientists that was able at least to do oral tradition as well as to write some of his modalities and methods of engaging with traditional healing. So until Gamma, we have a scientific community within traditional healing that will then do research, um, conduct conversations, um, symposium and all of that to, to give credibility of indigenous knowledge systems that are not recorded but scientific in its nature. Uh -huh. But you can only do that with a community of healers who have an understanding and again, academic capital to have the language of engaging with traditional healing as a science in itself. Now, 
if you look at the problems that we have in South Africa, traditional healing has been framed and centered around black magic, uh -huh. right? And as well as we've seen in social media, what black magic can do to make people go crazy. That's the construct that we know. So don't ever come and tell us about traditional healers as healers, but tell us as people who can do harm. That's my view, right? So very few we have testimonies and stories of people that says, I went to a healer, I had a therapeutic conversation with a sangoma, without imiti. Very few of those stories. Now, in the kind of work that I do, I'm a trained clinical psychologist, trained in a very Western way, and I went to an English university. So I don't remember where I was trained being introduced to African psychology. Even my dissertation, Yobra, I was even failed my dissertation. I needed an arbitrator because my dissertation was taken to two African universities. And there were African professors there, definitely, or whoever had a look at my dissertation. They asked one question, where is the psychology in its circumcision? But it was written in there. But again, it's marked by someone who has no interest of African realities and experiences. I could not use Freud to explain the psychology of a black man, right? But I'm going to use local scholars. Some of them, you can't find a journal article of them, but you use personal opinion. I had to go and do research and engage with Ingrid and people who are older in giving academic credibility. So even in academic spaces, there's no language for African psychology that normalizes experiences of African people. That has made me very radical to shift towards a my own nuanced understanding of what is African psychology. A lot has been written and is being written on decolonizing psychology, on African psychology by Professor Nkise, and latest book by Professor Kopanoratele around what psychology looks like, right? On going deeper into it. So I sat and I asked myself, if this is, has been done so much, how does this look in practice? Then I started looking around in the psychology of Umoya. Uh -huh. That's what I do. So in my practice, I'm a clinical psychologist, but I'm very wary of my identity as a healer. So in my office, you're not going to find the couch, right? Okay. With your background, Mozart, uh, classical music. You're not going to find incense. You're going to find Impepo, right? Okay. Yeah, even though I'm not going to ban it with you, but don't question me when, I, when you feel the smell of it. Sure. Right? Uh, so I've got Impepo, I've got sacred elements like water, shells, and candles to, go, to fill up my space because I work with energy. <sighs> Who taught me that? No one taught me that. It's an inborn gift I have as a healer. So in my psychological practice at the moment, my space looks a part of a modern psychologist mixed with tradition, okay. right? And um, we've got two times this time in my, in my office because my particular kind of clients are healers. Okay. Sangomas, you name them, prophets. So first thing they get into when they get into my room, they ask, again, they don't say Mr. Swanane, they say Mkulu or Gogo. Because 
I can't switch off that identity when I get into my office. It's me. Hence, I spoke of complex and critical identities about my beingness. Whereas psychology teaches you to be anonymous. Oh. I can't be that. Because I am the healing tool. Psychology says you are a recipient of making sense of this person's life, oh. whatever. That, for me, I need to be in the process with the person. So they come in, they take off their shoes because my room, I consider it to be in Dumba. It's not an office, right? Because I'm not the only one who's there. Okay. Those who I walk with, who have bestowed the healing gift of the work that I do, are already there. So the people, when they come in and take off their shoes, those who want to take them off, already they are respecting my space and those who are before me. And those who become active participants in my journey, that will then afford you the kind of feeling that you want. So first, they would take off their shoes, and some of them would say, I want to sit on the floor. And some would say, even, can I take off my sniff because I want to do stuff to, do, to, to be at ease. That's the first introduction, right? Now, I have my pen and paper. I'm very wary that space is psychological. And it will be psychological. However, how it is then done, I move through certain transitions that I'm sometimes unaware of. Okay. Right? But I hold space. This is a clinical space. But then some of the things that I get them to see and feel are far beyond that I was taught in psychology. Hence, in my medical team that I work with, I've got a psychiatrist, a medical doctor, a sangoma, a prophet, and a medium. Huh. Those are my referral sources. Because in my work with issues of grief and bereavement, there are people who need closure, who will never have closure because they don't understand certain things. Who's the best person to engage with that? Is a medium. And when they have engaged with that, they can come back to me and we unpack what that process was like. I've got people who have really issue, issues that are tied to obutagat. But a psychologist that has no understanding of that, may not understand, will just say that person is delusional. When they say, there's a mama say next, or this happening, would say, we've got delusions of persecution. For me, I go deeper. What do you mean by that? Can you explain it? So my cultural knowledge and understanding about tradition and culture, about how black magic works, is able to help me define what is clinical and what is spiritual and what is prophetic most of the time. Now, if I can do that, I'm able to hold space for Western psychology, for tradition, and what these patients, because at the end of the day, most of my patients then say, I chose you because you've got an appreciation of this world that has been demonized, of this world that has been made to be psychotic in the way of how I look at it. But I, my role is to normalize those experiences and I'm able to tell. You know, kids that I work with, Gamma Hectic, this woman who is going through a divorce, but it's tied to she can't divorce because umien wakutwele. Yeah. Right. Now, how on earth I can say to this person, leave your husband, when I know the implications of being married to a husband or toilet? Because mm. essentially now you know what is going on. 
right? So now she has to undo, do cleansing and all of these things for this person before. So I needed to then refer this person to a traditional healer first to do the work around Uktwala and protect this person. Then we can engage with the divorce process. But at the moment, it's tricky because see, her life would be in danger. And again, in danger of a world that we don't know. Anything is possible. Indeed, indeed. And this does strike me as a very complex world that you've just given me a glimpse of. And again, thank you so much for that. That is unfortunately where we'll have to um, wrap up proceedings as far as this conversation is concerned. You've been tuned into the Manhood Simplified podcast. My amazing guest, Mr. Anneli Siswana, joining us here to help us unpack the link between tradition, culture, manhood as a concept, the ways in which these pressures that we place on each other manifest themselves in negative ways and the ways in which we can go about doing the work that needs to be done to build the kind of society that we all want to see and live in. Again, on behalf of my absentee co-host, who is again in uh, Cape Town on assignment, Mr. Ayanda Nyati, thank you so much for taking time out of your days to check out any of the conversations that we've been having here on the Manhood Simplified podcast. That's not the only thing we're going to be dedicating our efforts to simplifying, so you're going to need to stay Stay tuned for that. Until such a time, big thank you to the Goethe Institute for hosting us. Big thank you to Disky99. Big thank you to the lovely folks from FES. And thank you for choosing us as your entertainment. <laughs>